0: Talking about uh, context and how important context is in understanding God's word, and uh, looking at the context in which Jesus taught and uh, the 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 first people that would have heard that teaching. Please excuse me, I've got a bit of a, a frog this morning which I can't seem to get rid of, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, So I'm not going to go into that now, but what I want to do is just look at uh, probably the best known of Jesus' parables, which follows the reading that we've just had. In fact, the whole of Luke chapter 15 is a unit, uh, and it's a a unit of three stories about something that got lost. And uh, the first story is about a lost sheep. Now, if you've been to Israel, you'll know there's no shortage of sheep in Israel. Uh, But nonetheless, if you lose a sheep, a good shepherd will go and he will find uh, that sheep and he will bring it back to the fold. The second thing that gets lost is a coin. Now, you may think that the coin, well, you know, yeah, we know how much lamb is per kilogram, and uh, the coin doesn't sound like much, but in fact, the, the coin is uh, part of the dowry that a, uh, a wife had. Ten coins that were sewn on into the dress. If you go to Israel today and you see Bedouin tribes, you will see women with these silver coins. It was like, uh, you know, her pension. A medical aid, um, which she wore. So when you lost one coin, it was a huge loss, much bigger than a sheep. So the second level of loss that Jesus is speaking about is this part of the dowry, a pension. So then the third level of loss is the loss of sons. Now, I know that this parable is called the prodigal son. But actually, that's not what Jesus called it. That's what the Bible printers put above the the story, the prodigal son. I think if Jesus had given a, a, a title to this story, this parable, he would have called it the compassionate father who lost two sons. Because, as I'm going to show you, the son, the obvious son, the prodigal so-called, actually is not the only one who's lost here. And uh, so it's interesting how many of the parables are misnamed. Uh, Let me give you another example, the parable of the sower. It's not about the sower at all. The parable is about four different types of soil that are compared to four different types of disciples. And uh, I think it's because we read without taking the context into account that we tend to put our own spin on these things. And uh, because we are so far from the original context, both in time and in culture, we read our own things into these texts which, possibly, Jesus never thought of. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, St. Augustine's uh, uh, interpretation, allegorical interpretation, of the, the uh, Good Samaritan, um, uh, if you haven't read it, look it up, Google it, um, is, is quite imaginative. But I'm sure when Jesus heard him teaching it, he said, I never taught that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have put our own spin on things. So, my passion is to try as much as possible, although it's a difficult thing to do, as much as possible to get back to what it meant in the first century of the Second Temple period of uh, Jewish history, and what it meant to the people that... that first heard it. That's where we begin. Then later on we can say, so how do we apply it to today? The other thing that we need to be aware of is be careful of coming to a well-known passage with a kind of I've heard it all before attitude. Scripture is is such that uh, you can read the same passage over and over again, and then suddenly you see something that you never saw before. And you think to yourself, I'm sure you've had this experience. Why didn't I see that? It's so obvious. And that's because the Spirit of God reveals the Word of God to us. These things are not just naturally understood. Not, the intellect is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. We need the Spirit of God to break open the Word to us so that we can feed on the, on the food that it is providing so in this particular parable, which, which is the third in three parables that talk about loss, uh, we don't need to read it because you know it so well. There is a father who has two sons. His younger son says to his father, Father, give me my inheritance. Uh, and uh, he goes off to a, a foreign country where he uh, uh, becomes what is known as an evil liver in the Book of Common Prayer, um, spends his money on wine, women, and song, and uh, it's soon gone. And then he comes to his senses and he says to himself, I'm starving here because I've got nothing, and even my father's servants eat well. Let me go home and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your servants. And we know that the father when he's still a long way off, sees him coming. That, for me, is the most poignant picture of our God. When you are still a long way off, he sees you coming. Because he's waiting. Another picture of it is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. God waits for us to respond. That's the sign of a true loving father. So uh, his father sees him a long way off. He runs to meet him, an undignified thing. You know, um, the way our clothes are, running is not so undignified. But when you wear long robes, to run... You have to reach down between your legs, grab the back part of the robe, pull it up between your legs, and then, you know, you look like an idiot. And what this father does is he humiliates himself in order to reach the son that has been so disrespectful, has turned against him, and has come home. Now, I think the reason that this younger son becomes the focus of the parable for us is because we all identify with the prodigal. But there's more to the story than that, and I want to go through it with you. The, the chapter begins with this statement. It says, now, all, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, the the, uh, teachers of the Torah, began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this introduction tells us that Jesus is responding to a concern that you'll find in many of the rabbinic writings and in the intertestamental period, in the book of Sirach and in the in the book of uh, uh, Tobias, um, there there is uh, concern about giving to sinners, about associating with sinners, Gentiles, because they lived so differently. The fear was that if you spend too much time with them, you become like them. And so that's where this, this, this sentiment comes from. Why is he spending his time with people that could actually be a bad influence on him. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's what Paul writes. So, uh, It was a commonly held belief. But Jesus tells three stories about being lost to illustrate why it is that he's with these people. It's not a polemic against the Pharisees or Phariseeism in general. When Jesus is critical of the Pharisees, it's usually of particular Pharisees who were hypocrites. And as I said yesterday, it's like the Christian church. It's full of hypocrites. But there's always room for some more. Okay? Because we're all hypocrites. At some level, we're all hypocrites. Okay? And uh, once we can acknowledge that, that we're not consistent, we can do something about it. But as, soon, as long as we weren't, are not prepared to acknowledge it, it remains in place. So, so when Jesus criticizes the Pharisees, uh, if you read the Talmud, the rabbinic writings, you will see that the Pharisees say exactly the same thing about themselves. So Jesus isn't making it up. He's probably reflecting to them what they were saying about themselves anyway. And the interesting thing is, of all the the parties of Judaism at the time, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees is the group that Jesus keeps relating to. Why? Because they were the charismatics of the day. They were the evangelicals of the day. They said, Bible is important. The Sadducees said, you can't obey the Bible and there's no afterlife, so what's the point? Come to the temple and we'll take your taxes. The, the, the Zealots said, our problem is not, uh, is not God, our problem is the Romans. Let's get rid of the Romans. The Essenes said, you're all a problem, we're going off into the desert to live on our own. <clears throat> so Jesus picks the Pharisees as the group that he constantly interacts with, which tells me something about the potential that Jesus saw in this group of people. Isn't it sad that the word Pharisee in the, in the dictionary has come to mean hypocrite? Um, which is actually more about our prejudice and in, uh, ignorance than it is about that group of people. So uh, let's redeem the Pharisees in our own minds for... Uh, um, for our own good. So this, the, the story deals with two types of people, and these types of people can be found universally, not just amongst the Pharisees. You can find them anywhere. Uh, and the way Jesus deals with this is brilliant. He creates a story about a family drama, now, you know that the word family and the word drama go together very easily. We all have them. Uh, every family has one. You know, uh, so he, he chooses something that is familiar to everyone. And uh, in this particular instance, uh, he, he chooses the scene between a father and his sons, the young son speaks to his father in a way that clearly he doesn't honor his father. And secondly, is like a death wish. I want my inheritance now. In other words, dad, to, to me, you're as good as dead. And uh, the, the first century people who listen to Jesus telling the story would have been shocked by that. But not nearly as shocked as they were about the older brother. You see, if you read the the text clearly, you'll see that in, in Luke 15 verse 12, it says that the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, So he, the father, divided his wealth between them. In other words, the older got his share as well, but he said nothing. Now, in in Jewish tradition, the oldest son got a double portion. The second son got a, a single share. So basically, the second son gets a third, and the older son gets two-thirds. But he quietly receives his share without involving himself in the broken relationship between his younger brother and the father. Now, Jesus is brilliant when he tells these stories of role reversal. What you expect is not what happens. So we have this parable that has three actors, and each of them plays a very significant role in the story, in the drama, but each one of them surprises the audience. So the audience probably expects the eldest son to, prof- to fulfill the role of a family mediator, which was the oldest son's role in the family. Culturally, the oldest son was responsible for keeping the peace in the family, They expect him to take his younger brother aside. Say to his father, hold on, Dad, I'll deal with this. Do you realize what you've just said to your father? How can you talk like that? Have you lost your senses? Now, let's get an apology together, and you go back and you apologize to Dad. And the older brother would be expected to take his brother along and say, Dad... Younger brother has something he wants to say to you. And that's the role of the older brother. That's what the audience was expecting. But instead, they got a silent, greedy hypocrite who said nothing. They expect the younger son to go off and to die of starvation rather than accept the shame of coming back to his father. And of course... He doesn't do that. And thirdly, they would have understood a severe punishment from the father who had suffered such abuse from both his sons. But instead, the audience is overwhelmed by the compassionate love of this father. You see how Jesus takes what people expect and he turns it upside down. He does the same thing with a good Samaritan. Who would have expected a Samaritan to stop and help a Jew lying bleeding on the side of the road? And that's why Jesus uses those characters. The plot of the story and the unexpected role that people take uh, make the drama uh, capture the attention of those that are listening and lead them to embrace an understanding of the type of love that comes to us from God alone. So let's deal with the older son first, then I'll deal with the the younger son, and then I'm going to deal with the father. The so-called obedient son of the parable is in fact just as lost as his younger brother, but he's lost in a different way. He separated himself from his father's love but he still did good and was the model of obedience. So on the outside, <clears throat> and this is the classical definition of a hypocrite, on the outside he looks like one thing, but inside he's completely different. With regard to his conduct, on the outside he seems fine, but his heart is, uh, is lost to his father. And his care about his younger brother is non-existent. According to Middle Eastern culture and Jewish traditional values of the time, such an elder son had a very strategic role to play in the family. When the younger son asked for for his inheritance, this was when the older son had to come to the fore. But instead... He doesn't. What's really scary about this older son is the fact that he hangs back knowing that he's going to get two-thirds of the property. And as we can see in his speech to his father at the conclusion, you remember when the son comes back, the father makes this big feast, kills the fatted calf... It was the other one that wasn't pleased to see the son come back. And, um, And then the elder son hears the festivities going on. He comes back and refuses to go into the party. And the father has to come out and plead with him. Once again, the father taking the role of humiliation, pleading with his son to come into the festivities. And his response to his father shows how far his heart is from the family, and his father in particular. He boasts about his faithful service. All these years I have served you, and I've never obeyed, disobeyed one of your commands, and you've never given me as much as a kid to celebrate with my friends. It's also clear from the way that he talks to his father. He has no respect for his father. He has no love for his father. All he's interested in is himself and money. Instead of being the family mediator, he's a greedy opportunist. The broken relationships are clear in the older son's speech to his father in the courtyard. He doesn't address his father with a title of honor. He fails to acknowledge any family ties with his younger brother. Listen to what he says to his father. He says, this son of yours, not my brother, not our disappointment, not our responsibility, this son of yours. He laments the fact that his father never made a celebration for him and uh, that uh, he basically treats his father like an employer or like a banker. And he doesn't even offer him the respect that one would give a lawyer or a banker. The theological concept portrayed in this story about the father's relationship with his son's has deep roots in uh, post-biblical Judaism, the the rabbinic Judaism. The elevated religious idea that one cannot serve God merely for the sake of personal benefit or for the sake of receiving a reward or avoiding punishment is reflected in the saying of Antigonus of Asokho, who is uh, from the second century uh, um, before Jesus. He says, be not like slaves that serve the master for the sake of receiving a reward, but be those who let the fear of heaven rest upon you. In other words, we have to learn to love God because he first loved us, not because by loving God, I'll get to heaven, or by loving God, I found the fire escape from hell. That's a very, very primitive form of love. But we have to love God because we understand how much he loves us. That he is that father that stands on the roof of the house day after day, looking down the dusty road to see whether if this day his lost son will be in the distance making his way home. That's the God that we serve. And that's where our love for God should come from. Okay, now let's go to the, the more well-known son, the rebellious one. Oh, he's, a, he's a rebel to the core. It's unthinkable that a child, particularly in that context, would ask his father for his inheritance before he dies. But after committing this terrible offense to make matters even worse, he liquidates the assets that he's given, which is property, liquidates the assets, puts the money in his pocket, and gets as far away from his father as he possibly can. At heart, this young man is the same as the rebel child described in Deuteronomy 21 verse 20. Whom his parents bring before the elders of the city with a complaint, our son is stubborn and rebellious. By the way, the sentence for that was that the son would be stoned to death. That's how serious it was. Interestingly, the rabbi that I study with, Reuben Suiza, pointed out that in the history of Israel, there is no account of a son ever being stoned. For being rebellious not because they didn't have rebellious sons but because they always looked for extenuating circumstances so that they could extend mercy you know that the commandments of scripture if you want to know what the important or the weightiest commands of scripture are look at the punishment that goes with it that's how you tell so for instance one of the heaviest commands in scripture is about uh, adultery. You shall not commit adultery. What was the punishment for that? That the two people who committed adultery are taken out and stoned to death. Of the 613 commands in the, in the Torah, <clears throat> the lightest command is, you shall shew away a bird from its nest so that it doesn't see you taking the eggs. And I was in a discussion with, uh, with uh, my rabbi about this issue, and I said to him, seems like there's no punishment for this. He said, no, there isn't one written, but there is one. I said, oh, really? What's that? He said, if you're the kind of person that would take eggs from underneath the mother bird, You have to live with yourself. That's punishment enough. (laughs) (laughs) So there are weighty commands and there are light commands. And we tell them by the sanction or by the reward. Honor your father and mother. Why? That you may live long in the land. What a wonderful reward. But it tells you how seriously that command was taken. So uh, <clears throat> the younger boy is a rebel, and he would have, he would have uh, um, uh, qualified for, uh, for stoning. And everybody knew that as they listened. He gets as far away from his father as possible. But the huge difference between the younger brother and the older brother is that at some point he has a change of heart. That's the big difference. That's why he becomes the star of the show. The older brother's heart never changed. All the time that his brother was away, he was silent. Then when his brother comes back and his father deals with him, his heart is still in the same place that it was when the younger brother left. It's tragic. And... uh, he has a change of heart. I love the way the King James Bible puts this. It says, when he, you know, when he was feeding the pigs and he was so hungry, he was, he was even contemplating e- eating the carob seeds, that the, the, the or carob pods that the pigs were eating. Uh, the King James Version says, when he came to himself, you know that experience, where you suddenly become aware of how you're behaving or how you're coming across. And you think to yourself, my goodness me, am I really doing that? That's what is, what is meant. Uh, I think the NIV says when he came to his senses, somehow it doesn't, doesn't capture it quite as much as when he came to himself, when he found himself again. And he does the unexpected thing he he knows that what he's done is shameful but he's not going to let the shame cause his death so he gets up and he has this little rehearsed speech i'll go back to my father and i'll say to my father father i've sinned against heaven and against you i'm no longer worthy to be called your son make me as one of your hired servants now this is a very interesting thing because at this moment he's become very religious how do i know that by the words that he uses You see, in in Israel, in the time of Jesus, people avoided using the name of God because the name of God is holy. And, of course, using the name of God, you were always in danger of using the Lord's name in vain. So they would use terms like the name, Hashem, or Hashemim, the heavens. So when he says, I've sinned against heaven, He's being very religious. He's avoiding using God's name. But he's saying, actually saying, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows he doesn't have an inheritance left because he spent it. So all he can do is go back as a servant. And uh, that's the great thing about the younger son. What he did was Shameful. But he walked through the shame in order to find reconciliation with his Father. And we have done that with our Heavenly Father. We've walked through the shame of the sin that we've committed, of our poor track record, and we've come empty-handed. Remember the the words of the, the wonderful hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's all we've got when you come and receive communion. Empty hands. That's all we've got. But our Father is always ready to receive us. Such is the love of of God. Okay, so that brings me on to the compassionate Father. The major role in this parable, by the way, is played by the Father. He he is the, the common denominator between everything. And uh, he is the one who acts in the most unexpected way, of all. Everyone is expecting him to punish. Now you know, I've been in the ministry long enough to know that that in our culture, a punishing God is a very real character, and people kind of have this. I I, I once was driving back from church. <laughs> I'd been to a, a meeting at church. I live very close to the church. I was driving back along the main road in Cape Town, and there was a roadblock. Now, I know what you're thinking. We, we hadn't had a, a protracted communion service. It wasn't that. <laughs> I didn't have my license with me. I was wearing my dog collar. The shame. So uh, anyway, this guy says to me, can I see your license? I said, I'm terribly sorry. I haven't got my license with me. So he said, well, uh, there's a 250 Rand fine. I said, yeah, sure. So he started writing out the ticket. And you know what he said to me? He said to me, am I going to be punished for doing this? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, my, my, my heart broke for him. And I said to him, my friend, if you don't do it, you're going to be punished. Not by God, but by your own conscience. Do the right thing. I'm the one who's in the wrong here, not you. Oh, okay, he said. (laughs) And finished writing out the ticket, which I paid. But, But this idea of God, the kind of punishing one who wants to catch us out, is so different to this picture that Jesus portrays by the way it is important to say that we should not presume on the love of God and live our lives well God won't punish okay we need to live lives of devotion because God loves us and we want to love him in return so <clears throat> Uh, Jesus compares the all-powerful God in Jewish tradition to a helpless parent. And all the parents listening to him thought, yeah, I I can relate to that. I've tried to comfort people in the past who've had problems with their children by saying, listen, Adam and Eve had the best parents and the best home environment of anybody in all of creation. And look how they messed up. You cannot take responsibility for your children's decisions, sadly. In the end, they will make their own decisions. And a loving father or a loving parent allows that to happen, but stands by to pick up the pieces. So that's what we see in this compassionate father, that uh, God is pictured as this helpless parent. Uh, After all, no parent can control the will of their child, and the correspondence to God is striking, for like the helpless father in the parable, the creator of heaven and earth allows us to make decisions, even bad decisions. The good news is that though you may have made bad decisions, you can always go back to your father. Now, I want to read a rabbinic parable, because we have this attitude that everything Jesus said was brand new. That he was like inventing something new all the time. Actually, what Jesus was doing, most of what he did, I would, I would estimate at least 80% of what Jesus teaches was well-known teaching in his day. It wasn't new. And uh, I want to read this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, parable uh, that is told by Rabbi Meir, uh, and this would date to just after the time of Jesus. He says, "To what can this matter be compared? To the son of a king who took to evil ways. The king sent a tutor to him who appealed to him saying, "Repent, my son." The son, however, sent the tutor back to his father with this message. How can I have the effrontery to return? I am ashamed to come before you. Thereupon his father sent back word. My son, is a son ever ashamed to return to his father? And is it not to your father that you will be returning? Thus the Holy One, blessed be he, sent Jeremiah the prophet to Israel when they sinned and said to them, go say to my children, return. Where do I learn this? It is said, go and proclaim these words, Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Israel asked Jeremiah, how can we have the effrontery to return to God? How do we know this? It is said, let us lie down in our shame and let our confusion cover us, Jeremiah 3, verse 25. But God sent them word, my children, if you return, will you not be returning to your father? How do we know this? For I am a father to Israel, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. So what this rabbi did was he took verses from Jeremiah and he built a story and then related each element of the story to the verses in Jeremiah. But the interesting thing is the story is almost identical to the story of the father and the rebellious son. So, what I'm trying to say to you is that what Jesus is doing is reinforcing ideas that were already there. He's not making it up as he goes along. The final thing that I want to say about this uh, parable is how the story ends or doesn't end. Have you noticed? The story concludes with the interaction between the Father. and and his oldest son in the courtyard of the house. The festivities are going on inside, and uh, the son is refusing to come to the festivities, and so the father goes out to try and reason with him. Uh, He began entreating him. Verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you never even given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, and killed, you've killed a fatted calf for him, and he said to him, my child, you have always been with me, and All that is mine is yours. There you see, he had his double portion. And the father actually owned nothing now. The son owned it all. But we had to make merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost, and has been found. And so the older brother said, the story stops why this is a technique that jesus often uses the story comes to a point and then stops because you have to finish the story for yourself if i was the older brother i would have said it's a brilliant way of teaching because none of us likes an unfinished story So we learn from the older brother, who most of us would would identify with, I think, that in fact he can put things right. He can change his attitude. He can go in and welcome his younger brother back, just for the sake of the fact that he's come back. He can honor his father, but the ball is in his court, just as the ball is in your court and my court. That's how God teaches us, and uh, it takes a bit of work, takes a bit of reflection, but we can actually fathom the meaning of these parables if we're prepared to do the background work. I want to say a prayer uh, before I leave the, the pulpit. Father, I want to thank you first of all that you really are the compassionate Father, and for the voice within us that doubts that. We ask you, Lord, that this parable may remind us of a father who looked day after day down the road to see if his son was returning. Thank you that that is how you deal with us. But, Lord, we also learn from the older son that it's easy to harden our hearts to resist your love, to turn away from you, to go our own way. And so, Lord, in our own lives, we want to finish this parable. We want to be reconciled to you. We want to be open and reconciled to our brother, whoever that may be. and we want to walk in the knowledge of your love and of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, so that our lives may be a witness to those around who haven't discovered quite what a loving and compassionate Father you are. We ask these things b'shem Yeshua HaMashiach in the name of Jesus the Messiah, amen.